Blog Talk Radio. This is Kale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's Buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah, this is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Romero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. I have a great guy on the phone, and we've got a lot to talk about, so we're just going to dive right in here. You know, my guest tonight, he began his career, as did many of his contemporaries back in the day, busking on the streets of Brooklyn. Little did he know that he would end up as a Grammy-nominated artist who would lay claim to one of the biggest and most successful hits in pop music history, a fabulously infectious 1980 smash called Steal Away. He's still hard at work on the music scene, and he's just released his latest album, a jazz-inspired collection of tunes, called Time and Tide, and he's come by the buzz this evening to discuss all of this and so much more. What a great thrill to welcome to my show tonight the terrific Robbie Dupree. Hey, Brandon, how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you, sir? Good, good. Let's kind of set the table here and start at the beginning. Give me the 60-second bio on Robbie Dupree. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Where would you go to school? Let's get that stuff out of the way. Okay, born and raised in East New York, Brooklyn. Went to Catholic school as a kid. Public school... Uh, at Franklin K. Lane High School in Brooklyn, and then um, I retired from formal education <laughs> and, 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 and headed while I was ahead of the game. And then I, uh, I began the early workings of a professional music career at that time. And did you always kind of know that music was, was it for you? No, I don't really think so. I, I, I always get asked that question, and I try to be really honest about it. I thought it was... Um, it was more of a hobby. It was something that uh, crept up on me, and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with my life, but I thought at that particular time it was a, a good thing to do, and I had a lot of fun with it, and I was learning and, and, and trying to grow with it, and, and it just kind of happened that it became a career for me. It, it, it was not really a plan. Isn't that funny? Yeah, I, I think it's probably true with a lot of people. It, it's about breaks, you know. It's like... Sure. You can have an idea of being a musician or a singer or a writer or whatever, and if you don't get some breaks down the line, you have to find some way to make a living, and that's what happens, you know. So there's so many you know, careers never get there. It's so funny because I saw Julia Roberts on an interview years ago, and, and somebody asked her, the, the interview, whoever it was, I can't remember who it was, but they asked her, you know, were you always the outgoing type? Were you always the, the actress type? Were you always, you know, very magnanimous and very you know, actressy, and, and, and her answer was no. I mean, she was never like that in high school. She was never the, the outgoing one. She was never always smiling. You know, she was she was going to be a dental hygienist. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's kind of funny what you're saying about how you just kind of trip into it all of a sudden. You do, and, and I mean, with music, you know, it's it's so much fun. It's not like acting where you, you know, actors just don't make a living, you know, playing in clubs and stuff. You Damn know? right. I was, a, I was able to, you know, come up that way as a, as a young guy playing in clubs and, enjoying that part of of life you know the social life of it and it was the time you know it was like those were the days when everybody bought a guitar and everybody loved the Beatles and you know what happened it was just like that so that's what happened and as a career developed it wasn't until I later on in um, about 1969 I um, got in my first really good band with um, Nile Rodgers who became Nile Rodgers of chic fame and uh, producing David Bowie and Diana Ross and Mick Jagger and Duran Duran and all of that stuff, you know, very, very, very famous guy. But at the time, he was just a kid from the Bronx, and we met on an audition in Manhattan, and we started playing together. And we had a band called New World Rising, and we played in joints down in the East Village, and 
up in Harlem. It was a mixed interracial band, and that was kind of weird at the time. And so we were restricted to like sort of different kinds of communities, you know, where we where we could play. When he booked it, we played Harlem. When I booked it, we played the East Village. <laughs> <laughs> so the, you know, I, I think I think about kids today and 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 who they. Who they? I mean, kids who you know dream of being rock stars and musicians, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I would imagine that people that they look up today are people like Lady Gaga or Usher or you know these these people who are very glamorous and very chic and you know live these outrageous lives, and 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 I would imagine that it seems a bit inaccessible, and and I'm thinking that you know you looking around back in your day, you were looking at people like James Taylor, people like Dylan, you know, people who seem like everyday guys and people who seemed. Like they lived a life that was very accessible. Is that is that fair or no? That is very fair, and those people are still around today. The ones that were lucky enough to survive it, you know, they're still around today, and I think their careers are probably maybe not on the radio, but their careers are so significant in live concert. You know, James Taylor and Carol King. Have oh, the tour. they're the biggest thing going this summer. They're the biggest thing going, and Dylan's still selling it out big, and so is Eric Clapton, and. You know, many of the people from that time still have found found that uh, the younger generation admires them as well. You know, not every kid is a Lady Gaga fan. You know, there's there's a lot of people that that still look to other kinds of music, and whether it's Dave Matthews or or Fish or whatever it might be, there's still a bunch of people that still have old souls in a way. You know, and that's kind of that's kind of a cool thing to see when I ask a kid. What he's listening to, and he tells me the Doors. I think that's you know that's that's amazing. When I was that wow. age, I was listening too. You know. So, uh, uh, what was your big break? What was the thing that really kind of set you on your way? Well, I think you know there are a lot of answers to that, but I mean the first answer was getting to work in that band and feeling for the very first time that it actually was possible to have something really good happen. I don't mean I'm not talking about like hits or anything like that that was the furthest thing from our minds but we were just looking to become journeyman musicians playing every night that's what our dream was you know and before that it never was right and once that band came along i felt the potential you know it's like that moment that you just hit the wave the right way you know and that started it off when that band broke up i came to woodstock new york and that was a place a mecca for great bands and side musicians and songwriters and recording studios and even though it's a small place it's always maintained that status of 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 who lives here and 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 there was something about being here at that time that gave you the best of two worlds um it was beautiful it was the country it was the mountains it was 2 hours from manhattan and yet it had everybody from the band and Paul Butterfield and David Sanborn and, you know, on and on and on, all kinds of great players. So it was a great place to be. And that was the next break for me. So, you know, so, I mean, in a career that's as long as mine, breaks come, you know, and of course the one that everybody knows about is when I left Woodstock in 78 and I went to California and I began again after, you know, it seems like a series of building it up and then having it fall apart for one reason or another and then going somewhere else and starting over again. And that's what I did in L.A. And I did, and I recorded a demo with my good friends who I met in Woodstock years before. And um, that demo turned into the record, Steal Away, and that record deal with Electra Records and all of the great things that happened from that. So that was another break, you know, and they and they continue. You know, they seem to be different different intervals and different periods if you hang around long enough various opportunities present themselves you know sure. maybe not in the extreme like the, the steal away days you know how can you ever recreate that, <laughs> Absolutely. Kind of, that kind of you know enormous stuff that went on but other things happen you know and, and that's that's kind of cool i just did the jimmy fallon show which was a great thing to play with the roots on jimmy fallon and that was terrific you know, you mentioned Steal Away, and, and you can't talk about you without talking about Steal Away. How did that song come to you? It really had no specific significance. You know, it was really just we were living in um, West Hollywood, and we were writing songs, and that was just one of them. You know, there was no, wow, this is going to be a hit or anything. It was just another song, and it didn't get a deal. 
And, you know, it's a story I've told many times, but I was at this point in my life where I've been doing it now for like, I don't know, 12 years or 15, 14 years or whatever it was. And I decided that I was coming to California and I was going to make my last demo. This is it. You know, I've been up and down so many times. I was going to give it up. And so we made this demo and I was excited about it, but nothing happened. I did not get a deal. Months went by and I had to face a reality. So I came back to New York. A friend of mine gave me a job loading trucks and pretty much that was it. In a complete twist of fate, ironic moment, somebody stopped off at my drummer's brother's house and happened to hear the cassette and he worked at Electra Records. And he said, who's this guy? And it wasn't really a pitch. It was just really like playing music. And and the guy said, uh, tell him, call him now and tell him that he can have a record deal if he comes out next week. I'll be back next week. I swear to God. So after all of the... After all of the hundreds of gigs and the dozens of bands and the showcases and everything, it happens because some guy stops by and uh, sits down and hears a cassette and decides that I'm going to get a record deal. And um, it went from there. Still about dumb luck. That was dumb luck completely. And that was, it was the strangest thing. And from there, it didn't stop. You know, when I went to California and then I thought, well, there's a big difference between a record deal and a hit, but at least I got a record deal and I can say that I did, you know, and it was important to be published as any kind of a writer. You know, you feel good about it. Sure. And I felt really satisfied at that moment with what had happened, and then the rest of the stuff just started to happen, and, you know, then I find myself on, you know, Dick Clark show and Midnight <laughs> Special and, Amer- you know, and everything else and the Grammys and all of the stuff and... uh only a few months before that, I was loading trucks. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like I was any overnight sensation. Let me sure. put it that way. So, so I came up the real hard way, and then, like they said in The Godfather, it's just when I thought I was away, they pulled me back. <laughs> you know, they wouldn't let me quit. Legacy and the endurance of that song is pretty incredible. I mean, it still gets played on the radio worldwide every single day, and you know, with these stations like, like Bob and Jack, these kind of catch-all stations still springing mm-hmm. up. That late '70s and that that early '80s sound is yeah. the main thing those stations go for, and you're right there in the mix. Right, and like Sirius Radio and all of the absolute things, and and the classic stations are numerous around the country, and they have quite a bit of pull. It's it's a miracle, you know, but and, and I didn't mean to seem cavalier like the song didn't mean anything to me, but what I've learned about it over the years is that the people have given it the meaning that it has. For me, it wasn't about a particular person or it wasn't about, you know, singing to my girlfriend or something. It wasn't like that. But what happened is as time goes by and you look at the years and years of fan mail in the old days and now Internet mail, the stories that come in about it, this is the song that we played at our wedding, this is the song that we wow. fell in love to, this is the song that my son was in the army and he died and his was his favorite song, you know. So really, the meaning for that song has been injected by all the millions of people who have embraced it in some way in their lives, you know. And so I let that be the answer, you know. I, I don't, I don't, whatever I could say would be nowhere near as significant as what they put to it, you know. You know, I had an artist named Brenda Russell in here some time ago, and she had a big hit Brenda. called Piano, Piano in the Dark. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I had Alita Adams in here last year, and she had a massive hit called Get Here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, w- I asked them what I want to ask you now, which is when you have a huge hit like that, 
which kind of towers over everything else in your discography, can it be as much of a blessing as it is a curse? No, I mean, you can look at that way, you know, but you have to realize that in many cases, if it wasn't for that, you wouldn't be here at all anyway. My father always used to say, dance with the one that brung you, you know, <laughs> and um, it was a, really a good idea, you know, because uh, it was, that's the way it was, you know, and you have to play it every night. You know, it was really said well. I, I never could think of a way to explain it, really, but James Taylor had a song called That's Why I'm Here, and it was uh -huh. all these little metaphors about, you know, my friend says, James, can I borrow your truck? And I say, that's why I'm here. And then the last verse... is about fire and rain. Right, he says, I'll sing fire and rain again yep. and again, because that's yep. why I'm here. That's the way you have to look at it, that you, you're going to play it every night, and it means more to anybody than anything that I'm ever going to do again, probably, you know. And, like, what a great opportunity that is, you know. That's my Casablanca. You know what I mean? That's uh -huh. like the that's like the moment. Some people have many of those things, you know, like you know Elton John and the Stones and all of this kind of stuff. Or James himself. Right. But for us, but he'll always he'll always have that. That'll always be the one. If you ask people what's your favorite song that of James yeah. Taylor, I'm sure that that's the one that they'll say. And I'm lucky to have one that people could say that's my favorite Robbie Dupree song. You know, it's uh, it's years ago I, I saw, uh, there's a great singer-songwriter by the name of David Gray. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. I'm very familiar with him, yeah. He had a huge hit called Babylon, which kind of, you mm -hmm. know, blasted him into the into the stratosphere about a decade ago. And, and right. I saw him in San Francisco about five years ago at the Fillmore. And, you know, he saved Babylon for the encore. And, you know, by the end of the by the end of the night, people knew that, you know, the concert was wrapping up and and there was almost a... A growing roar in the in the in the crowd to hear Babylon. They wanted to hear that song, and right. and I mean I'm sure he had every intention of playing it, but but you know a part of part of me thought that if he didn't play it, there would have been a riot on the stage. I mean he wouldn't have he wouldn't have gotten out of the building without playing that song. One way and there's also a lot of disappointment. The bottom line is, it costs a lot of money to buy a ticket today to see anybody. You bet. And like you, I don't think you can really forget. Again, if you're going to talk about somebody who's had 25 hits, they may not want to play. Crocodile Rock tomorrow night. You know what I mean. But if you're talking about somebody who's had one big hit or two, it's a responsibility, you know. Unless you advertise it in another way, you know, and tell people just playing stuff from my new Baroque record, you know. But uh, but you know, if you if you expect them to slap down thirty five dollars or fifty dollars or whatever it is to get into a place, you know, I think it's a responsibility. A lot of people would disagree with me. But you know, I've been I've been I've done a million miles on this road, you know, and I think that the audience is all that keeps you floating when you're out here. You know, if you don't have them, you know, you know what are you, what are you going to do? You know, exactly so they, right. Have, and there's kind of a tacit understanding between you that you know they'll come see you, but you have to you have to satisfy part of what they're coming for. Sure, and and you know, it's it's a kind of a respect for it. You know, it's a kind of a respect. I respect it. It's bigger than the moment that I wrote it. It's bigger than the hit when it was first a hit because it's had this maturity period to be around for 30 years this summer okay this is the 30th anniversary of that it's played over 3 million times on the radio according to BMI unbelievable that's only in America and it's the kind of a thing that like how can you not want to respect that honor which is what it is you know and it's one thing you know a lot of records get to be hits but you never hear them again and I have a lot of songs that I, I think of and I say, wow, that was really a cool song, but it just doesn't come around again. Uh -huh. And then you get these songs that are classic hits, but I think, you know, who decides that? I mean, I have to think of it's the audience, it's requests, it's sort of a popularity, you know. Steal Away just wound up in two movies this year. One was the Saturday Night Live thing called MacGruber. It was a comedy with Will Forte and Val okay, Kilmer sure, and yeah. stuff. And then another one which I think is still coming out in October with Jim Carrey and Ewan McGregor called I Love You, Philip Morris. And it typifies a period, you know, and, and like if you're going to make a film about the early 80s or something, it's a song that can, can belong in there sure. in that soundtrack, you know. So it's, it's lucky, you know, it's just it's a lucky thing for me. So when you run, when you run across it on the radio these days, do you do you recognize it instantly, or does it take you a couple of seconds to realize what you're what you're hearing? 
It goes both ways. I've 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 heard it like that. You know, I've heard it in airports, and it's been <laughs> sort of surprising. When it first came out, I used to go around like intentionally listening for it. You know, I'd just be like, "Wow, did you hear it? I heard it on the radio today in L.A. It was like great." You know, and then somebody'd call me up and say, "Hey, I heard your song today." You know, and in those early days, you you you've really tuned up for it, but now, you know, I could be. You know, picking out the uh, you know mop and glow in the department yeah. store, and it comes on. You know, and it's like it's just funny. So you're you're back with your first album in a few years now, Time and Tide. Tell me, tell me at this point in your life, what this record means to you? Well, it means a lot because every time I sit down to write a record, I always wonder if I still have anything left in the bucket. You know what I mean? I've always said that if if I have to resort to writing a children's record, then you know I'm out of the business. You know, so. <laughs> You're not going to see a Robbie Dupree <laughs> little children's thing going on, you know. So um, it's it's sort of like you sit down, there's a blank page, there's some instruments, recording equipment, you're ready to do it the way you've always done it, and uh, you've lived some more since the last record, and sure. you sit down to write it, and, and uh, you never know. You know, nobody ever starts out to make a bad record, you know. You kind of like develop it so at the end of this record i was extremely proud of of it and it was also reassuring and um it's just like that you know i mean it's just i'm being completely candid about it you just don't know if it's going to be something that you're really happy about and the success or failure of it is a separate issue but the personal conclusion that you draw about it you know yourself how it's sounding and how it feels and if it means anything and so I, I've been I've been I've been feeling good about it. You know, you, you say you don't start out to make a bad record. Do you start out to make a record? Period. I mean, do you do you decide one day, okay, I'm just going to sit down and write some songs, or or do you do you gather songs over the months and over the years, or how does it how does it work for you? Did you ever hear of a of a real old time songwriter named Sammy Kahn? Oh, absolutely, sure. Yeah, I mean, he wrote millions of classics. He was interviewed one time on NPR by Terry Gross and she said to him I, I know this is a boring question but what comes first the lyrics or the music and he said well Terry first comes the phone call <laughs> you know so I kind of feel like that I feel like I get a call are you interested in doing a project you know maybe next year I think yeah I've got a bunch of stuff that I've been working on no design on an album, but like you said, you know, collecting it. But it usually takes some kind of a business thing to really kick it off because... Yeah, you need an impetus of some kind. Well, yeah, not only that, but it's also a really expensive proposition to be an independent. I don't make records, you know, in my living room with, uh, you know, a drum machine, you know. Like it's a full band, it's a full record. I do it like the old school way, you know. I'm I'm still in live tracking and... All of that stuff. So there has to be a demand for it is really the, the candid way to put it. If I feel like there's interest abroad in my territories that I've done well, Scandinavia and Europe and Japan, and then here in Canada, and if it seems like there's interest uh, management usually fields that interest out, and then we make a plan, you know, start now, put it out next April or something, you know, and that that's the way it went on this one. But I also have to live in between records, you know. I'm not prolific. It's not like every day I wake up and write a song, you know. Like after the last album, there was just time to, like, have something to write about. You know, I, I've listened to a few of the cuts, and it, it feels like a bit of a departure from your so-called typical sound. I mean, did you go into this deliberately intent on incorporating some jazzier, looser, more organic elements into this, into, into your music, into this? Well, you know what? There's an awful lot of albums in between Steal Away and this one, and I think that most people haven't had access to them. If you had, you'd just see that there's like a kind of a, a normal progression. If you're going to measure like Steal Away against, um, you know, the Time and Tide album, you'll hear differences in it, but... Not so dramatic. It's just not pop. You know, it's just not pop anymore. When you get older, you're not going to write songs about taking girls in cars to the movies. You know, things change 30 years later and your life is more reflective and, and, and you know, hopefully I've grown in a good way with the music. It wasn't like um, a radical thought to, like, make this different than my first album or something. It's just, you know, there have been albums like Smoke and Mirrors, Carried Away, Walking on Water... 
and that all records through the years that have you know had their own little personality to them you know a little little different this one is more like the first one in that many of the people that play on this one played on my first albums the drummer the bass player the percussionist and singer who sings background with me so it's one band just like the last time you know like the first time i should say and many of the same guys it was sort of like a reunion of of a musical spirit do you have a, do you have a favorite track on the record or two or three tracks that really kind of stand out for you i think that um lucky is a very interesting one because it really does it in a very short song it really uh sums up everything we've talked about sort of like my uh, quick autobiography I wasn't going to be sitting there like trying to figure out 
sure. you know, all of this stuff, you know. <laughs> and do you use things like Facebook and MySpace and, and you know, the, the social media sites? Do you use things like that to connect with your fans, or, or do you just keep it on the I website? do, but it's funny about Facebook. I don't think I've ever written anything on Facebook, but I always say yes to everybody who – I don't know how many thousand fans I have, but anybody who says hello – and wants to be a friend, I just do it, and it's a way that I can sort of let them know what's going on. You know, the the webmaster sends things out, like Robbie will be appearing at here and there, and you know that's how I use it. But I don't, I don't, I don't um, Twitter or any of that stuff. You know, it's gotcha. sort of just, it's not. It, I don't know why. I, I don't. What am I going to say? You know, I just watched The Sopranos. You know. <laughs> Incredible! You got to see it. It's great. Episode twenty, you know. So I don't think I'm all that interesting, you know. Gotcha. So to artists such as yourself who already have that established fan base, is is the internet still crucial, or is it is it important in a different way? I mean, how do you how do you rate the internet in terms of in terms of people such as yourself in your business who already have that established base, that established foundation? I'd say it's one hundred percent the most important thing that there is out there. I mean, I don't see any other anything else without it you know today record companies and what they want to know is how many people are on your facebook page and how many how many people are on your mailing list and you know they use it you have to use it because they use it as a barometer they look at how many hits come to your music site you know they say oh you got 48,000 hits on lucky or whatever you know that's what they do and that's how it works. I mean, it's really weird, you know. That's why I really do stay away from it on that level. What I told you is what I believe. It's a perfect way for me to have a one-on-one connection through my website with fans. They can write in. They can see what's going on. They can support the music. They can do a lot of stuff. I feel really good about that. I keep my personal life out of all of this stuff. First of all, because it's my personal and private life. Second of all, it's not that interesting. It's just like everybody else's, you know. It's like, who cares, you know. Gotcha. But I think for the younger bands and the people who really go crazy with this stuff, I think it's even important to them because they don't have the venues and the access that I have. They can't just say, well, I'm going to go play four weeks overseas next month, you know, or whatever. You know, they, they're like struggling to just, they're playing for free now. You know, I went I went into the city last night, to New York City, to a place called The Living Room. And one of the women who sings background with me has her own career. And I just went and saw her play last night in, in this place, and she had between 10 and 11 to play. She has to pay her band. There's no admission in the club, and you don't get paid anything. So it probably cost her $500 to play last night. Wow. And she's dedicated, and she wants it to happen. But 35 years ago, when I was playing in that same on that same street, we made you know a couple of hundred dollars to play there. Imagine the difference in just. I'm not saying we got rich, but we always had a gig. Everybody took fifty dollars home or something. It cost her five hundred dollars, and that's the nature of the business today. It's a seller's market. You know, they just like you come to them and they or. A venue, and they just say, "Yeah, you can play here. How many people can you bring?" And we don't pay anything, you know. But you'll get the exposure, you know. So I think one of my albums is going to be "Too Much Exposure" will be the title. <laughs> Not enough money, too much exposure. <laughs> so, given the way that we as a society process and consume music in this day and age, did the internet have any influence? at all over how you created this new record or, or over how you approach music in general? None, none at all. I still make it the same way. The concept is the same. It's only a venue to try to sell it, but it's not anything that I, I, I do differently. You know, the record company posts things on MySpace, and I have a management company and a publicity company, and they do things with it. But me personally, in the creative process, I think it would have no place on these kind of records you know i think on maybe if you were going for a a modern thing and you were going for a big dance record or something like that i think it would probably be a lot different but you know my fans i don't even think they they use that that medium you know i think websites is like the extent of it you know gotcha downloads are a big business but 
there's nothing else to do in it. You know, in other words, you just do your record the normal way, and and then um, a company takes it and puts it on all of the servers, and uh, that's the end of it. You know. Speaking of the internet, and you brought this up earlier, you're now an internet sensation, having just appeared on Jimmy Fallon's late night show. Uh, right. How did how did this come about? There was an article in Rolling Stone magazine, a magazine that I haven't read in years, and and all of a sudden I came home from a show, and there was this this whole bunch of messages on my machine from all kinds of people saying things like, "Did you see Rolling Stone? Hey man, this is remember me? I used to book you in uh, Chicago, you know, and uh, I just saw you in Rolling Stone." And so the next day I got up and I went and bought Rolling Stone, and sure enough, there was a Jimmy Fallon interview with uh, Questlove, the, the drummer, leader of uh, of the, the Roots, and Jimmy talking about the music hang on the show and the mashups that they do and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And, and uh, the guy said to him, is there anybody that you haven't had on the show that you really want to have on the show? And much to my surprise, he said, I really want to have Robbie Dupree sing and steal away. I called my booking agent and I said, here's a gig that even you can get me. And you just have to like, you just have to call the guy, and it can happen. I mean, he put it in the in the in the in Rolling Stone. Okay, I know you can handle this. Anyway, a process happened, and phone calls were made, and the next thing you know, he wanted to do it. And then when I got to do the show, Jimmy met me at the dressing room door and said, "Okay, now check this out. I know the song completely. You have to let me sing with you." Oh my God! I said. I said Really? Because I know every background part. So I talked to the girls, and they squeezed him in the middle, and um, he sang background on it, and it was great. You know, he had a ball, and it was totally fun, and it was a great honor. You know, it was like a great a great thing to be on the show, and uh, you don't get those kind of big opportunities like that much anymore. You know, like it's different. You don't get the shots to be on Letterman and Fallon. And oh, Fallon's it's so- unbelievable. Yeah, he's so hot, and like his show is like so much hipper than those shows that it was really great. And the Roots were fun to play with, you know. That was a, a really cool thing for me to just get thrown into that, you know. And, and the way uh, those videos go viral on Hulu and YouTube and all these video websites, exactly. it's, it's unbelievable how much how much exposure you may have gotten from just you know five minutes of being on that show. Exactly, it's it's great, you know. I mean, it's I can say one thing about Jimmy Fallon. He's been given a lot in his career, and he knows it, and he's a give-back guy, and he gave back to me on that one, you know. Like, that was, he's been a fan of the song. He loves that period of music. He's down with it. You know, just think of all the people with all of the big record companies and all of the power that's behind everybody that wants to do a Friday night on that show. So he had to go to the wall for me, you know what I mean? I would never forget that. That was that was a high point, you know, for me because I told him then, you know, there was a time when I was doing these shows twice a week, you know, and then there's a long time when you can't get on any of them, and then this is a big, big, big thing for me. Thank you very much, and um, sure. and he was cool, you know, he's a very cool guy. So, what are you listening to right now? What what grabs you by the ear when you flip channels and flip on the radio? You know, I've really bagged out of the radio a lot because the formatting is what's killed it. You know, I mean, for me. I don't want to get on a, on a soapbox about it, but when I was coming up as a kid, there was a great effort to do away with race records. But people don't know what that means. There used to be a serial number on all the records, and at the end of the number, it had an R. And that meant it was a black record. And so they could just throw it in the garbage can and not play it or whatever they did with it. And when I was coming up and starting to play music, it was beautiful because different DJs and different people and the powers that be broke all those walls down and the top hundred was loaded with, you know, from the Temptations to the Rolling Stones to, you know, anybody, you know, it was just like it wasn't anything. And then somehow along the line, formatting started, AAA and Urban and... I don't know, hot one, hot fifty, whatever it is, and so what, what's happened now is when you turn on a station, there's no diversity whatsoever. You bet, it's all the same and, thing, and and the country has their little ghetto, and, exactly. and hip hop has their little ghetto, and right, the contemporary has their little ghetto, and right, and, and never so the twain shall meet. Right, and so that's really turned me off to it. Where I liked it when the people decided, you know, when you just laid it down and they picked it up, and radio had a job of educating people. 
and DJs who were hip, which most of them were, would turn you on to different ideas, and you would hear the brilliance of Bob Dylan's lyrics against the um, innocence of uh, Leslie Gore, you know. I mean, but it was all together. It was just music, you know. And so it's a bummer in a way now to hear it. And so I just, like, reach out to different friends, and what are you listening to? And we sort of exchange things. A lot of friends in Europe have turned me on to a lot of music that I don't get to hear here at all. There's one particular guy named Lewis Taylor, who I've been into in a big way. You know, he's really funky R&B guy who's a, a white kid from England, but he's just brilliant, you know, and he's never going to have a hit record or anything, but his music is very, very special. I've been really digging that. And some of the pop stuff, you know, I, I'm a guy who, who digs Katy Perry now and then, you know what I mean? Like, I can go that way, you know. But, you know, there's not much around. You know, it's so funny that you mentioned someone like Katy Perry, though, because she has been very smart about you know, taking those restrictions and working them to her advantage. I mean, she's very smart about, you know, knowing exactly her niche, exactly where she fits in, and, you know, using it to her best advantage. Yeah, and the records are fun. I mean, they're cool. When you listen to the record, they're really good pop records. You know, I still like a good pop record. And I think that they're, you know, they're really contagious, and they're the songs of the summer. California is going to be like sailing, you know, for 2010, you know. You bet. It's just, you know what I'm talking about? That's the Absolutely. thing. Like, and I don't know if you're going to remember Lady Gaga or not, but I think that Katy Perry definitely c cut a spot, you know, and it's it's kind of cool, you know. I like what she does, and she does sell it in a good way, and she's, she's over the top in a kind of fun way, but she's not over the top in a bizarre way, you know, and so I, I kind of dig that. Lady Gaga runs it a little... Like when you come out dressed in meat, you kind of leave me at you leave me at the door, you know. I, I just can't go in. Like, what are you wearing today? Pork, you know. It's just so it's not like I stopped listening to music. It's when the good stuff, you know. I dug Duffy. You know that was a cool record. You know, it was a very like, cool record. That was a cool record. So I, I can go. I can go there if it's cool. But if it's just because it's new, it doesn't mean anything to me. That's I've been through new. For, for 40 years, you know, up and down with that. But this is, you know, the good stuff, the good pop stuff is a lot of fun. And the good deep stuff, like, you know, is a lot of fun too, you know. It's it's poser stuff that I'm not into. I'm not into Coldplay and over-drama stuff, you know. But, I mean, I, I gave it a listen, and I, I wanted to get into it, but I just couldn't go there, you know. So what's on the horizon for Robbie Dupree? I assume that you're you're going to tour behind this record at least uh, a, a couple of shows. What's the... Yeah, well, the I mean... 2011 is only, what, three months away, mm -hmm. and we're trying to do a European thing and a Japanese thing, come back here in the spring and the summer and play dates, and between now and then, I'm just doing this kind of stuff, publicity, promotion gotcha. stuff, you know, interview stuff. But, you know, the U.S. is so big that, like, t talking about what's going on is like, where do you mean, you know? Like, what's going on in Austin is completely different from what's going on in Manhattan. The only thing that's universal is that hip-hop is everywhere. <laughs> that's the only thing you can count on. You know, it's so funny you say that because you're talking about David Gray again. He was talking about the difference between, say, making it in Ireland or England, where mm -hmm. there's only, you know, a handful of radio stations, to making right. it here where you, where he said, you know, the country's so massive that you have to go around to all the different pockets and introduce yourself and shake hands and, and you really have to keep drilling it into people that, you know, you're still alive, you're still out there, you're still, mm -hmm. you're still making music because, you know, it's, uh, people have a very short memory because the country is so big. That's true. I mean, like, in, I, think, I think in Canada, I think you get a gold record for 50,000 or something. So it's really small comparatively. Yeah you know, to to our half million and million yeah. and all of that stuff, you know. But Which is it almost is impossible these days. I mean, you know, even even the superstars aren't selling a million a million records anymore. I know, I know. It's really it's very, very different, you know. I don't blame the internet for that as much as back on my soapbox. I blame the fact that the appetite for music is based on how it's portrayed and how it's doled out to the people. And in the days when we had beautiful big album covers and people were fans of those, the art and the vibe on it, you know, and music was really integrated, not just racially, but music was really integrated 
in terms of eclectic forms and everything was happening at one time, people really were fans of music and people really hung out and like knew about music and went to see all kinds of things, even like the Fillmore, okay? The Fillmore used to have three acts every night. They were never the same. You could see an African act with Joni Mitchell and headlining B.B. King. So you might have went there to see B.B. King and you got to see, you know, an African group and you got to see Joni Mitchell and you never even heard of her before. So Bill Graham was laying down the idea that if you put out good food, people will eat it, you know, and, and he did a good thing with it, you know. So I think that as things have been reduced to almost insignificance about music, I'll give you a case in point. People were mesmerized by like an album cover like Sgt. Pepper's. Everybody who got that record used to look at it and, you know, I can't even explain it, but it was a whole thing that everybody got into about album covers. Today, when you see the CD album cover of that, you don't even recognize it. It's like a stamp. Like it has no power or no significance whatsoever, you know. So they kind of robbed the public of the beauty of the whole industry, you know, and the whole way it used to be. And the and, people uh, who download, you know, songs to songs a la carte on iTunes don't even get that much. Right, and they never get to hear an album and yeah. its and its sense of continuity, like what was the purpose of this record and why, you know. It's an unfortunate thing, but when they devalue stuff like that, you know, they take away the tangible stuff, you know, and when they make radio stations all computerized and programmed and they take away the fact that a DJ used to have his personality and his experience in music used to really speak to the people, and they always had a significant... You ask a guy or a girl who's like maybe 45 years old or older, who was the DJ that you grew up with? <laughs> They'll tell you. They'll say, I listened to, you know, Jocko, or I listened to Roscoe on FM, uh, you know, uh, WNEW-FM in New York, or Pete Fornital, or... You know, they'll all, wherever you are in the region of the country, you knew. Now, who knows anything? It doesn't matter. It's just another thing, you know. Well, and, and you know, the the funny thing about that is, you know, those DJs gave those stations very distinct personalities, and now you have, you know, these conglomerates who own, like, 50 radio stations, and they, they program one show into the primetime hours of all 50 of those radio stations. So it's all... Right. You could be... You could be... I mean, there's no more... There's no more distinct flavors anymore. It's all homogenized. It's all the same right. thing. Right, right. And you don't bring taste anymore to the game. That's what I meant. Yeah. Like a lot of the music that I heard was because of the taste of the DJ and the experience. I would have had no other venue to get them. You know, it makes me, I laugh all the time when you hear musicians talk about like, well, what did you grow up listening to? And they always say like, well, I grew up listening to like Lead Belly and Howlin' Wolf. And I'm thinking, how, how did you get that? <laughs> I lived in New York. I never even heard of them. Where, you know, I think they make this fantasy up, you know, like the reality was we all heard the same stuff on the, it, it, before FM radio, everybody heard the same top 40. And if you heard Howlin' Wolf, who played it, your grandmother? I mean, like, how did you get it, you know? So I don't buy these stories about the blues from everybody, you know, myself, because uh -huh. I grew up and my parents played their music. Glenn Miller, Frank Sinatra, Perry Como, you know, that's the music I heard. And so, you know, it was just like the FM DJs broke all of this stuff out, you know, and and started to talk about blues legends and the, and the fact that the Rolling Stones were really recording all songs by Muddy Waters and and Howlin' Wolf and people. That's how I found out, you know. I didn't. I would have known that on my own. So, you know, these were the education days for people. They made great customers. You know, aside from people that knew about music, they made great customers, you know, and that's where the business lost them. Now people don't care. They'll download anything. It's anonymous, you know, and it's hard. I'm lucky to have fans that do know who I am and do follow it. You know, it's not millions of people, but it's how many it is. At least they're there. You know, they're Absolutely. solid, you know, so that's 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 the cool part. Well, I'll tell you what, I wish you the best of luck with this. Again, the album is called Time and Tide, and you can find it at, at iTunes. You can find it at Amazon.com. You can find it at RobbieDupree.com, his website. You can find it at any number of of online outlets, and, and I'm sure Amazon has it. And, and there will be links at my website and at the show's website. So 
anybody who's who's listening to this can can you know just click on the link and, and go get it immediately. So thanks. I really appreciate your time, and it was a great opportunity to to talk to you. And um, I hope Same I get here. to do it, it was again. It's great fun speaking with you. All right, man. I'll I'll speak to you again. Hey, before I let you go, could I get you to do a promo for my show? Sure. As long as it includes the words Robbie Dupree and Brandon's Buzz, anything else you say is totally up to you. Okay. Hey, this is Robbie Dupree. I'm just getting finished with a great interview with Brandon's Buzz. Check it out. Listen to Brandon. He's happening. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much, sir. Okay, my friend. The fantastic Robbie Dupree, everybody, on Brandon's Buzz. Brandon's Buzz in the can. Three places to find the show. If you're listening, you already know, in case you don't. blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. That is kind of home base for the show. You can listen to the show. You can download previous episodes of the show. You can leave comments. You can send emails. It really is home base for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at brandonsbuzz.com, my blog. From there, at the top of any page is a blue button marked radio. You click that button. That takes you to a page where there is a full radio archive of all episodes of this show. This is episode number 68. This and all previous 67 are available in the radio archive at brandonsbuzz.com. You can also find me on iTunes. I'm on iTunes, guys, right next to Robbie Dupree. Just type in Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section. Click on my logo. From there, you can download old episodes of the show as uh, podcasts for, for, uh, for uh, playback on the device of your choosing, or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they're uploaded to the music store. So I'm all over the Internet. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on iTunes. Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and something will pop up that points you in my direction. And I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me, and I hope you continue finding and listening. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind. So spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy. Great show. Check it out. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi. This is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Baby, when you live on the street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt. <laughs>